Alright students, welcome back to Lecture 7 on Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019. I believe this is Lecture 24, but this is Lecture 7 on the Purgatorio. Today what we are going to talk about is the moral structure of Purgatory just a little bit. We're going to talk about examples of zeal as well as sloth, because we are on the Terrace of Sloth, the fourth Terrace of the, um, the fourth Terrace of Purgatorio. We're going to get to the fifth Cornus Avarice after seeing a dream, uh, the second dream. The dream will be about a witch slash siren. She'll talk about Ulysses. That'll be very interesting. We'll talk a lot about that. And then we're going to meet our new guide, our second guide of three on this three canticle journey to uh, see the uh, tripartite uh, or, or tri-essence, tri-unity uh, god of Dante. In any case, let's get moving. So, sloth and zeal. Here we see sloth and, or in particular, we see the exemplary virtue. So recall the structure of purgatory. Whenever we get to a new terrace, we see exemplary art of the virtue opposite to the vice that is being expiated. We then see penitents who are dealing with the punishment of that particular terrace. And then we see examples in art of the vice itself. So recall in pride, we saw uh, marble sculptures sculpted into the side of the terrace. Then we saw the penitents being with their back-breaking labor. Literally, they had stones on their back the stones that they stood on to look down on others. And then we saw examples underneath their feet of pride. Well, here we're going to see examples of the virtue of zeal. That means to be eager. That means to move quickly towards things, to do things as quickly as possible. In fact, if I were to lecture on book three of um, Net, uh, book three of the Odyssey to you right now, I would say a good example of zeal is how quickly uh, Nestor's men and children do his will before he is even done giving his command. They are done, uh, they, are, they are doing what it is he has instructed. It's quite opposite from dragging one's feet. In any case, I do have a correction as well to make at the beginning of this lecture. I said last class that Canto 17 and the discussion on rational and natural love was the diametric center of the Divine Comedy. Wrong, not very good math. That would be good math if there were 33 cantos in the Inferno, which there are not. There are 34. And so the canto at the diametric center of both the Purgatorio and the Divine Comedy is not Canto 17 of the Purgatorio, but rather Canto 16. And what conversations do we find there? Well, we still find Marco Lombardo speaking. First, we have him talking about how to develop the free will and how one's free will, not the stars, determines whether one is good or bad. What is right at the center, the heart of the Divine Comedy, is a conversation about responsibility, personal responsibility, and who is responsible for one's own actions, and that person is in the stars like Bernetta Latini said? No, it's in, uh, that person is you, and the willpower within you, according to Marco Lombardo, who is saved, not damned, obviously, like, um, like, uh, uh Bernetta Latini. Also, there's a conversation in that same canto about the church and the state and the proper relationship. The idea seeming to be that who maintains the balance in this world between church and state? That would be people with their free intellects, and, well, I suppose a person cannot love as we find in Canto 17, unless they uh, make the choice to love in any case. It's almost as if, without free will, how can you love anything? And can you access the highest love without free will, without openly choosing something based on its own merits? I wonder. In any case, the first example of zeal that we have is exactly what you would expect it to be. Do I have it written here? I have it here. Good, good. I'll read it to you. Soon... All that mighty throng drew near us, where they ran and ran. So obviously, the slothful people who were sort of lazy, didn't move very quickly during their lives, dragged their feet, are now moving very quickly. They have to sprint around constantly. 
The mighty throng drew near us, for they ran and ran, and two in front of them who wept were crying in her journey. So, okay, how is the art received? It's, again, poetry. It's like song. You have uh, people giving voice to these stories. Stories that we then imagine. The first story that we hear, the story of Zeal, is, of course, about the person. Of the, the first story in art is always about, in all seven terraces of the Purgatorio, it's about Mary. And Mary made haste to reach the mountain, and in order to conquer Lorida, first Caesar thrust against Marseille, and then to Spain he rushed. So we actually get both examples of zeal there. What are they? Okay, the first one. Mary rushes to the house of Elizabeth and Zachary for the birth of their child so as not to miss it. That's a very good example because, well, you can't really stop the birth of somebody unless you happen to be Hera and Eletheia and you're trying to mess around with Heracles and Zeus and the Iliad. No. Uh, if a baby's coming, that baby is going to come, and, uh, well, you got to get there on time in order to see it. You don't want to miss that sort of thing. If you're slothful and drag your feet, you might very well miss it. The idea being here that when you do not move as quickly as possible, you will miss out on things that you otherwise would not miss out on, and, uh, the underlying idea there seems to be that missing out on things, FOMO as you might call it, or, or our fear of missing out on things, uh, is, uh, Something you want to avoid because it is better to see more things than it is to miss them. And I, I just think that's sort of interesting, especially given the fact that we say things like take as many opportunities as you can, you want to see as much as possible while you're young, experience everything. It does seem to be a natural belief that seeing more things is better than not seeing more things. And well, in any case, that's what Mary shows here. We have a second example, and this one uh, more militaristic. Julius Caesar. This is our Greco-Roman or pagan example as opposed to our New Testament Mary example. Well, Julius Caesar was known, uh, part, of, part of his claim to fame was known to have been just how rapidly he could mobilize his troops, how fast he could move troops from one location to another. In fact, uh, some ancient account, I think it was Tacitus, that said, that said he could move his troops something like 100 miles in a day. And this is infantry, uh, which is, you know, we, uh, certainly impossible because ultra-marathon runners don't make 100 miles in a day. But the idea was that Julius Caesar's men moved very, very fast. And that the reason why he was so successful in a general was because his troops moved very, very fast. And so when he uh, hastened his men from Marseille to Spain, he left this guy, Brutus, behind. The idea here being that if you want to be successful in life, one thing you need to do is to be fast. And you need to be faster than those around you. Uh, I, I, I don't actually think that needs that much more explanation. The quicker you can do things and do things effectively, the more you get done, the more you put yourself ahead of others, whether it be in terms of like schoolwork, whether it be in terms of weightlifting, whether it be in terms of producing businesses or, or, or products out of business. The faster you can pump things out, the more of an advantage you are at it. So you need some eagerness, you need some zeal, you need to attack the day is the idea behind this, not just sort of slump over and hope the day happens to you. Right? In any case, moving on. Following them, the others cried, Quick! Quick! Lest time be lost through insufficient love. You see there that that is the problem with sloth. Insufficient love. Remember that all the uh, vices come from some uh, denigration of, not denigration, but uh, besmirchment. Mm, that's sort of like denigration. They all come from some error of love. Uh, either rational love has chosen the wrong object in terms of pride, envy, and anger, or in the fourth terrace, there's not enough love, or in the last three terraces, there's too much love for the wrong thing, uh, or that, rather not for the wrong thing, but just too much love. 
When it comes to avarice, too much love for money. When it comes to gluttony, too much love for sweets. And when it comes to um, lust, too much love for sensuality. And in fact, uh, I say sweets with gluttony because we're going to meet love poets there, people who like to use their tongues sweetly. And I thought that was an interesting, uh, very interesting turn that uh, Dante made. In any case, lest time be lost through insufficient love. Where urge for good is keen, grace finds new green. O people in whom eager fervor now may compensate for sloth and negligence, you showed in doing good half-heartedly. He who's alive, and surely I don't lie to you, would climb above as soon as he has seen the sun shed light on us again, then tell us where the passage lies at hand. My guide said this. One of the souls replied, come, follow us, and you will find the gap. All right, we're heading towards the fifth. Terrace. Now, so, sloth, sloth explained. I took a moment to explain this, but uh, let's see what, what it was that we saw. So, this is a vice of insufficient love rather than the former three vices, which were vices of directing one's love towards the wrong object. An incorrect, uh, or yes, orienting one's will towards the wrong object with one's rational love. In any case, this is a half-hearted effort, as in one did not put their full heart or one's full effort into something, hmm, uh, sort of a restatement. These, now remember, the vices are three. Wrong object, like I said, now the third, for the third time. Pride, envy, and wrath. Insufficient love, that's sloth, and then too much love or zeal. That's avarice, gluttony, and lust. Just to review very quickly. All right. And he. These are now the examples of sloth. Who was my help in every need said, turn around. See those two coming. They whose words mock sloth. And I heard those two say, Behind all the rest, the ones for whom the sea parted were dead before the Jordan saw those who had inherited its land. So, okay, just as the structure with all the terraces of Purgatory go, we saw the example of the exemplary virtue of seal. Then we saw the actual slothful. They're running very fast. Now we see the examples of sloth. And the first example talks about people who got to see the sea part, the Red Sea. It's sometimes called, but it's actually the Reed Sea. These were the followers of Moses out of Egypt during the Exodus story. There were these Jewish people, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. This prophet named Moses came, he said, set my people free. The Pharaoh said no. Uh, several plagues were then ventured upon the Egyptians. The Jews were then freed. Uh, they might have been called the Hebrews at the time. Jude, the term Jew comes later. Um, they might not have actually, yeah, in any case. Um, they go across this Reed Sea, and then they have 40 years in the desert. <laughs> So, uh, you know, uh, a big escape scene, but they're not immediately taken into some nice kingdom. They, they have 40 years in the desert. And in this desert, apparently they run into times of disbelief, incredulity, resistance, transgression. In fact, at some point they have poisonous snakes sent at them. They worship a golden calf. They lose focus during their time out in the desert. And because of that, well, they lose their chance to enter into Jerusalem at the end of their journey. The idea here underlying that being that the things you want, you cannot see at present time because they exist in the future, and if you drag your feet at this present time, that future will never exist. So say you're a sophomore, and you want to go to Stanford, but you can't see you at Stanford right now, well, then you might not do all the work necessary, like, you know, uh, uh, charitably give your time to a hospital, ace every class, B, varsity, Sports, be varsity academically, you know, all the and be in student government, all the things necessary to get into an Ivy League or a near Ivy League university. Well, if you can't visualize yourself in that sort of future, are you going to do the things necessary in order to establish that future? Are you going to move quickly 
enough to make it to that future. Very difficult to get the best things in this life if you cannot visualize the best things in this life. You never get what you don't move towards. In any case, that's part of what this idea is. And those who did not suffer trials until the end together with Anchises' son gave themselves up to life without renown. Then, when those shades were so far off from us, that seeing them became impossible, a new thought rose inside of me, and from that thought still others, many and diverse, were born. I was so drawn from random thought to thought that wandering in my mind, I shut my eyes, transforming thought on thought to dream. I think that's an excellent exposition of how dream happens. You're thinking of something and thinking of something and thinking of something and then bam. And then the alarm's going off and you had some weird visions and it's morning. Very good. In any case, the second example of sloth is an example from last year, taken from book five of the Aeneid. When in Sicily, the women uh, who were the Trojans uh, of Aeneas, they, uh, during the funeral games for Anchises a year after he dies, they burn the ships of Aeneas, and Aeneas, with his good friend Acestes, decides, mm, maybe I'll leave the women, children, and old people, the people who do not want glory or to make it to Italy, I'll leave them behind in Sicily, because not everybody wants the same thing. This story, similarly uh, to the story we just talked about, the Exodus, is a story of not making it to the end, because you do not have the correct vision of the future, or you do not have sufficient love to move you towards that future. In any case, we have both an Old Testament and a Greco-Roman example of when you do not move towards the future you want, you do not get the future that you want. And while Dante then sees the slothful run off after hearing these examples, he then thinks about one thing, thinks about another, thought tumbles on the thought, thought becomes a stream of consciousness, and, or unconsciousness in this case, he falls asleep, dream number two comes next. In that hour, when the heat of day, defeated by earth and sometimes Saturn, can no longer warm up the moon, sent cold, when geomancers can, in the east, see therefore Tuna Major rising before the dawn along the path that will be darkened for it only briefly, a stammering woman came to me in a dream. Her eyes askew and crooked on her feet. Her hands were crippled, her complexion sallow. Sallow means kind of unhealthy yellow, like jaundice. I looked at her, and just as sun revives cold limbs, that night made me numb, or made, that night made numb, so did my gaze loosen her tongue, and then in little time set her contorted limbs in perfect order, and with the coloring that love prefers, my eyes transformed the wanness of her features. And when her speech had been set free, then she began to sing so that it would have been most difficult for me to turn aside. I am, she sang, I am the pleasing siren who in mid-sea leads mariners astray. They're in so much delight in hearing, in hearing me. I turned aside Ulysses, although he had longed to journey. Who grows used to me seldom departs. I satisfy him so. Her lips were not yet done. When there beside me a woman showed herself alert and saintly to cast the siren into much confusion. All right, so very good. Alright, so what's happening there? So, second dream. The dream of a siren, sometimes called a witch. At first, she approaches Dante. She looks like a cross-eyed old hag with limp hands and crooked feet. <laughs> she then, when Dante gazes at her, starts to speak, move her lips. When she starts to speak, she then starts to sing. And when she sings, it sets her limbs in perfect order. Which means that Dante starts to fall under her spell. You again see spoken language or poetry or the power of uh, the transmission of language here. 
she makes him forget that she's actually ugly by appearing beautiful because of her song. So the idea here is that these final three vices, which she represents, avarice, gluttony, and lust, are actually ugly, and they have ugly ends if you overindulge in them, as we've seen with Francesca, as we've seen with Chiaco, as we've seen with the avaricious, who we, we didn't even uh, have differentiated for us in uh, Circle 4 of the Inferno. Uh, remember, they were just a bunch of clergymen. Um, in any case, the idea here is that these vices, when you look at them for what they really are, show them for what they are. But when you let them deceive you, you can find them far more pleasing than they truly are. Very interesting. Uh, just something for when you are older. If you have the chance to watch Stephen King's The Shining, I think there is a scene that very much is representative of this. There is a woman, like a witch or a siren, this will be in the new movie, too, who actually turns from a beautiful woman into an ugly one, uh, old hideous hag, sort of like this. And I think uh, even though the directionality, the direction of the scene is different, I think it is essentially representing the same thing in any case. Now, we have Ulysses mentioned again in this canticle. He will be mentioned in all three canticles of the Divine Comedy. We actually saw him sort of in Canto 26 of the Inferno. We see him here mentioned in song, or in a dream, of all things, a very complex narrative, in Purgatorio 19. We'll also see him mentioned again as a, or his journey described as a scar across the world, just as he has a scar on his knee from a boar in Paradiso 27. And so Ulysses <coughs> seems to have captured uh, Dante's imagination in the same way that the siren is attempting to capture the imaginations of those who fly or who sail by her. In any case... The siren is an allegorical image or pictorial symbol of the sensual, carnal, fleshly sense. Those all mean the same things. Those things you sense with your sense organs that you can touch. Carnal, again, that means your skin. Um, like carne asada, you're eating skin, beef skin, or your flesh. And those three sins, those final three sins, those fleshly sins are avarice, gluttony, and lust. And so they are only appealing, as I said before, when one lets oneself hear their song or feel their blinding effect. So you know you shouldn't be sensual, but you, or excuse me, you know you shouldn't be lustful, but you feel the cheek of another, and all of a sudden you've allowed yourself to be inflamed with lust. You know that you shouldn't overindulge in sweets, and yet the second that cake touches your mouth, you eat it all. Avarice, you know you shouldn't let money overcome you, but you get that first check from your lawn mowing job of $150, and you're rich, and you just want more and more and more. You get a taste for it, and then you're hooked. And that's the idea behind these. So, uh, essentially, Dante's idea would be, you should probably stay away from the sensual desires, because they hook people, like a siren. And remember the sirens from the Odyssey. You hear them, you what? You approach them, you get addicted to their song, and then you die in front of them. Everybody. Unless you have some incredible... Restraint, like what Odysseus has. And in fact, he has more than self-restraint. He has other people helping to restrain him while tying him to a mask. The idea is that nobody is above the sensual sins. And so they are very, very dangerous because, well, anybody can get hooked on them. Well, I think that's not so untrue. I think that's not untrue at all. In any case, that's all the time we have for talking about the siren. Let's move on to Terrace 5 and see the avaricious... And we'll soon find also the prodigal. Take a look at these images. Notice what's happening with these 
characters. They all seem to be, it seems like a kindergarten classroom when they've upset the teacher. <laughs> Alright, everybody lie down and heads down. You're taking a nap. Well, that's essentially what's happening here with the avaricious. So, avarice and prodigality. The souls on the fifth terrace, I'll add some color to this for when I send you, purify themselves of their vice. Avarice or sinful opposite prodigality. We only find out that prodigality is also here because Statius is being punished on this terrace. And Statius is being punished for being prodigal, not for being avaricious, which he will explain to us. And uh, we'll get more into that explanation tomorrow. Um, what they're doing here is lying face down on the hard rock floor, weeping and praying. And they themselves call out poetically examples of greed, avarice, and supposing virtue of generosity slash poverty. So generosity uh, leading unto poverty. Giving everything you have to others rather than covetously keeping what you have to yourself. You could say do that with money. You could say do that with talent as well. Remember Achilles. I refuse to fight. He had a ton of talent. Could have saved a lot of people from dying and caused a lot of people who were his enemies to die. Refused to do it. And so wasn't very generous. In any case, uh, if you were looking for an allegorical contrapasso way to interpret this, you might say that instead of focusing on eternal things, like the stars, or concepts like love or wisdom, these people focused on earthly things so much that it blinded them to eternal things. So you see yet another people who are sort of blinded. We saw the envious with iron wire definitely blinding them. We saw the angry with black smoke darker than hell definitely blinding them. Now we see people staring at the ground. Well, if you're staring at the ground, the ground's made of matter. What can you see? If your head is, if your eyes are three centimeters from the ground, what are you seeing? Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. They're blind. Just as they were blind to the existence of spiritual or superior things during their lives. And that does seem to be the problem. You focus on money constantly. You make a lot of money. That's great. But there's a lot more to life than that. And so they lose perspective. Here, we meet, before we meet Statius, our first saved pope. We've seen several unsaved popes at this point. Pope Anastasius and his tomb. We heard about Pope Celestine. He wasn't there. Uh, and then we talked to Pope Innocent down waiting for uh, Boniface down amongst the heretics. Well, now we finally meet a pope who's saved. And, well, uh, a couple funny things about him. Well, one funny thing about him is uh, that he only lived a little bit more than a month after his election to the papacy. He actually reminds me of that one uh, president who gave the longest ever um, State of the Union in the rain, then caught pneumonia and died about a month later. I forget exactly who that was, um, but it's sort of a sad, sort of a funny story. In any case, Pope Adrian V was only Pope for a month, and so you can see clearly that there is an element of humor here that Dante's including, because why is it that he's not down amongst the other simoniac uh, popes, or the heretic popes? I, I misspoke earlier. Uh, of course, Innocent was amongst the simoniacs, not the heretics. That's where Anastasius was. Well, why is he not a Simonist? Well, part of the reason might be that he didn't have time to be corrupted. He was only a pope for one month. And so if you only do a job that tends to corrupt people for one month, perhaps you'll be spared. In any case, he explains how this prostate, prostrate, oh, that's funny, uh, position is fitting punishment for their neglect of spiritual matters and their excessive attachment to worldly goods. For essentially exactly what I said. They are now literally physically attached to the earth with their eyes literally, almost, well, almost literally physically attached to the earth. In any case, this pope is the first saved pope that we encounter by Dante, and he tells Dante not to kneel to him because he is obviously a uh, he is a shade 
and is therefore uh, no longer, his worldly position from the earth is no longer relevant. These people in this one city, this celestial city, heading up to the one true city of heaven, are all equals together, no matter what their worldly rank was. This comes up again and again in the Purgatorio, that it doesn't matter who you were or what you had in the, the life. All that is gone. Remember Cato with Marcia? He's no longer married to her. Notice here that this guy was a pope, but now he's simply a soul. And it was actually amongst the envious, I believe, that we heard. We heard, uh, sir, there are no Florentines here because we are all citizens of one true city. I think you mean a pilgrim who went, lived in Florence. In any case, moving on. Now we experience something very strange on this mountain. A mountain quake. Let us observe it. Delos had surely not been buffeted so hard before Latona planted there the nest in which to bear the sky's two eyes. Y'all get what that means yet? I'll explain it to you. Then such a shout rose up on every side that drawing near to me, my master said, don't be afraid, as long as I'm your guide. So again, something that freaks out Dante, the new, always. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory in the highest of God. They all cried. So did I understand from those nearby whose shouted words were able to be heard. Just like the shepherds who first heard that song we stood, but did not move in expectation until the trembling stopped, the song was done. All right, that's a very weird thing that just happened. The earth is shaking, and spirits are singing, Gloria in excelsis Deo. So we know something's happening. But what is happening? We must determine. So we feel the mountain quake. This is worse than when Latona, that's Leto, the goddess mother of Apollo and Diana, apparently had her birth pains, had her children, the moon and the sky. Moon, Artemis, Diana, or excuse me, the moon and the sun, not the sky. Sun, Helios, Hyperion, Apollo. Uh, remember that it was supposedly on Delos that um, Apollo and Artemis were born, which is why Delos remains a, a place of prophecy and sacred to Apollo. In fact, if you ever watch the HBO prestige drama uh, Westworld, the company that provides the Westworld simulated experience is called Delos, as you would expect. Know also that Delphi was also holy to Apollo, just for your own general edification. In any case, why has this mountain quaked? Well, we'll soon find out when we meet stations that nothing natural happens randomly on this mountain after you get into Purgatory proper. There's no wind, until you, get to, until you get to Eden, but it's a constant wind because of the constant motion of the celestial spheres. There's no rain, there's no dew, there's no hail, there's no lightning, there are no storms. Everything happens within a prescribed order here. Everything is ordered because this is a place created by mind and a perfect mind, perfectly ordered, which you might say is a proud thing for Dante to believe, but it is what he's saying. In any case, hmm, let's now have an explanation. Let's have the official explanation for why this happened. Now, I want you to notice closely when we meet this new figure, who he is compared to. So a figure now approaches us. We've just felt a mountain quake, heard Gloria in excelsis Deo, and now we see somebody come towards us. And here, even as Luke records for us, he's one of the writers of one of the synoptic gospels, the one that has uh, Jesus as a young man, um, that Christ, new risen from his burial cave, appeared to two along his way. <laughs> a shade appeared, and he advanced behind our backs. While we were careful not to trample on the outstretched crowd, we did not notice him. They're looking at their feet. They're sort of like the avaricious people paying attention to what's below them. Until he had addressed us with, 
God give you, O oh my brother's peace. We turned it once. Then, after offering suitable response. All right, needs stations. He is the cause of the mountain quake. He will talk about this. Apparently, he has done something very important that has made both the earth tremble, like Poseidon is trembling at earthquaker or earthshaker, remember, and also the spirits sing. He is compared to the new risen Christ of Luke. Interesting, because he was a first century Roman who was very much definitely not a Christian. And so something interesting to say here is this. Dante will have Statius claim that he converted to Christianity because of Eclogue 4 of Virgil. Because he read something written by Virgil, and I will show that to you tomorrow. You've seen it before, though. Um, Virgil converted him to Christianity. This is almost certainly a literary invention of Dante. We do not have any historical um, artifacts suggesting that Statius was actually a Christian. So, he is made into a Christian by Dante. And this is important because he is sort of an intermediary guide for Dante. Just as Virgil is very much a pagan who had Christian tendencies, we backread into him, who was not Christian, and that's why he's down in Inferno 4, Limbo, Hell, for all eternity. So will we have a Roman who wrote epic poems, the Thebaid and the Achilleid, though he died during the Achilleid. We'll talk about that soon, tomorrow. Um, so do we have a Roman epic poet who converted to Christianity? Then our third uh, guy will be a definitive Christian, somebody who was, at least for the vast majority of her life, Christian. And so we'll see a transformation of guides in the same way that potentially we are going to see a transformation in the pilgrim himself in a place of transformation, no less. Interesting also about the idea of a new risen crisis, the idea here is that he had died. He had put away his physical body. And now he was freed of his physical body and could have his eternal body and now walk in eternity. Well, Statius, why did the mountain quake? He has just freed himself of the last stain of his body. He has just freed himself from sin. It is unclear whether it is just avarice that he has freed himself of or all sin. I would say I think it is all sin, even though he happens to be on the fifth terrace where we find him rather than the seven, it seems like he's done all the work necessary. And so now his will is officially freed. And he will have, as a freed, fully redeemed soul, information that Virgil simply does not have access to. He will tell us new truths that Virgil cannot. He will prepare us for a guide that is not Virgil. Hmm. <laughs> all right. That other shade began... Now he's going to explain to us essentially what just happened with that mountain quake. The sanctity of these slopes does not suffer anything that's without order or uncustomary. So apparently this was expected, which is interesting about the freedom of the will. If this was an expected event to happen with order, did he choose? <laughs> did he freely make the choices necessary in order to get to this point and then the mountain quake? Or was it planned for all time that the mountain quake at this time when he make the correct choices? <laughs> Very good question. In any case, this place is free, oh, Dante's very smart, from every perturbation. What heaven from itself and in itself receives may serve as cause here, no thing else. So the mind rules here. Nothing happens randomly. Anything that happens was planned to happen and was supposed to happen and happens with good reason. Therefore, no rain, no hail, no snow, no dew, no hoarfrost falls here. Any higher than the stairs of entry with their three brief steps. See those 
three colors there. Neither thick clouds nor thin appear, nor flash <coughs> or lightning. Thaumas' daughter, anybody tell from those colors who Thaumas' daughter is? Iris, the rainbow goddess, who so often shifts places in your world is absent here. So, Stasius, a little more about him. And you know, and I, what, what else do I have? Here, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll say these things to you, but I think I've already said them to you in a way. So, remember this first and foremost. Stasius has just told us that the mountain has quaked for good reason. It did not randomly quake. It quaked because his will was just liberated. He is now free and is ready to go through the final fire of purgatory, go to the Garden of Eden, and descend to celestial paradise heaven. He's free. Wow. Something he is soon going to say to us, and so I'm going to start mixing up elements of what I'm saying today with what I'm saying tomorrow, is that he's a big fan of Virgil and that, in fact, he converted because of Virgil. In fact, two things Virgil did for him. A, Virgil's poetry turned Statius into a poet himself. B, it turned him from his pagan ways to Christianity, which has C, landed him in purgatory rather than the inferno. It is literally the case, so says Statius, that Virgil saved his soul. And... What is Virgil's reward for this? He gets to meet Statius. And he actually says that uh, because Juvenal came down, who was a contemporary of Statius, they, they were both Roman poets at the same time in the first century, uh, he, uh, Juvenal actually came down to the Inferno, Limbo, Circle uh, 1, met Virgil, told Virgil about Statius, and so Virgil actually has a lot of affection for Statius. So when they meet each other, they're both going to be very happy to see each other. And what's interesting about that is, of course, neither of them actually met in real life, they are meeting in the poetry of Dante. They are meeting in the mind, or what has been produced by the mind of Dante, and not randomly, but again, within perfect order. The last couple facts I need you to have from tonight are these. In the, Glutton, in the Terrace of Gluttony, we will meet several poets, one of whom will be Foresi Donati. We'll also meet Bonajunta de Luca. Now, something about Foresi is he'll say that he has a very devout wife, Nella, her name is. And she prays so much that she's actually shot him up in five years from anti-purgatory up to first terrace, second terrace, third terrace, fourth terrace, fifth terrace, up to the sixth terrace. He's all the way up to the sixth terrace, and he's almost done with purgatory. He's only been dead for five years. You say, well, that still sounds like a long time. I say, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a long time. Well, Statius' timeline. It's 1300 during the course of this poem. Statius died about 70 CE. So he's been down here on purgatory for about 1,200 years. In fact, if you look at the timeline here, he was amongst the slothful for 400 years, the prodigal 500 years, and then 300 years just unaccounted for on various other terraces. So how much time it takes one to expurgate one's sin depends on one's determination to do so. And so that's very interesting. And I think <coughs> if there were something deeper to convey to you today, it might be something like this. Things don't just happen in time. Things happen in the time that you do them. And so some people can do things far faster than others, and some things do not change unless you make them change. They can stay the same forever, apparently, without you changing them. And so look at Statius, who spends 1,200 years on the Purgatorio. Look at Farisi, who spends five, even though prayer helps him quite a bit. It seems to be that the sooner you get the message and get to work, the sooner you get what you want. Which, well, <laughs> that seems pretty good. Seems pretty good. All right. Mm. Statius continues explaining the mountain quakes. A tremor, for it only trembles here when some soul feels it's cleansed. That's him. 
so that it rises or stirs to climb on high, and that shout follows. The will alone is proof of purity and fully free, surprises soul into a change of dwelling place effectively. Purgatorio to Paradiso. Soul had the will to climb before, but that will was opposed by longing to do penance as once to sin instilled by divine justice. So that's very interesting. Apparently the souls on Purgatory choose to do penance. They still feel like they have to pay for what they have done during life, just as they sinned during life. So just as they had an inclination to sin during life, so do they have an inclination to purge themselves of sin on the purgatory. But once they free their will, they no longer have this inclination, and their inclination becomes to rise. Finally, I who have lain in this suffering 500 years and more, just now have felt my free will for a better threshold. Thus you have heard the earthquake and the pious spirits throughout the mountain as they praised the Lord, and may he send them speedily upward. So did he speak to us, and just as joy is greater when we quench a greater thirst, the joy he brought cannot be told in words. All right, that's all that we're going to talk about today. We are going to continue with Statius tomorrow.